Well, Exodus chapter 6, and we finished last time in verse 9. We're going to pick up there again, but um, the book of Exodus is a picture of the salvation that ultimately will be brought through Christ. So it's an Old Testament picture of a New Testament reality. And it's alluded to in the New Testament in this way. In Colossians 2, 13 to 15, it says, And you being dead in your trespasses and uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made it alive together with him, having forgot, forgiven you all trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting's requirements that was against us, which is contrary to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. And there it is, having disarmed the principalities and powers. Pharaoh, like Satan, is being taken down in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, Pharaoh, a picture of the one keeping him in slavery, keeping them in bondage, whittling them down, putting them to death. And, uh, but in the New Testament, through the cross of Christ, he's disarmed the principalities and powers, and he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. And then in 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19, knowing that you were not redeemed, um, bought out of slavery is redeemed with corruptible things like gold or silver from the aimless conduct received by your traditions from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as a lamb without blemish and without spot. So we have a far greater redemption. And of course, the book of Hebrews goes into great detail to point out to these second generation Jews that Jesus is far greater than Moses, and the salvation that the Messiah has given us is, is, can't even be compared to the exodus and going into the promised land. Does everybody have a Bible? Sanjay, I, I know, so you don't have one. We have some right here right, as soon as you come in. Um, Dennis is going to get one for you. And uh, we are in Exodus chapter 6. Sorry there, I hope it didn't embarrass you. But... Um, so last week we left off in verse 9. So Moses spoke thus to the children of Israel, but they did not heed Moses because of the anguish of spirit and cruel bondage. So again, you, you would have thought at this point the children of Israel would have been ecstatic and rejoicing, but they were so without hope. Why? They were without God. You know, so right now, God is one of many gods to them who've been living in Egypt, even though they're Hebrews. They don't know anything about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And uh, very, very little. And, and so the, the, the difficulty they were in was speaking far louder than the blessing God said he was going to bring. And they couldn't hear it. They couldn't receive it. They couldn't put faith with it because they were just horribly overwhelmed. This is going to be their problem <laughs> all the way to the end of the book of Exodus, that they can't have faith to the promises of God. In Hebrews 4, 2, it says, for indeed the gospel was preached to us as well as to them. This is it. But the word which they heard did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in those who heard it. 
In Hebrews 4, 3, For we who have believed do enter the rest, as he said, So I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although the works were finished from the foundation of the world. There, right after creation, there in, in, in Genesis 3, he spoke about the woman giving birth, the virgin giving birth, and, and that son crushing Satan, the snake's head. But it tells us there that it, it never did them any good, even though God had already seen it as finished. It's the same way now. First John 2 says that Christ paid for the sins of the whole world. But yet, there's so many in the world that are going to die and stand at the judgment seat of Christ. It's the point of every man to die once after that judgment. And the Lord's going to show them that their sins were paid for. That hell was not necessary. That he took on and paid for their hell, in, in essence. He paid the price of their sins. All they had to do is believe. And at the moment they believed, they would have been forgiven and given the gift of eternal life. That's going to be an eye-opening moment when they understand <laughs> that they could right now be stepping into heaven with Jesus. The, the, the price had been paid. The only reason that reality has not happened because they didn't have faith in the work that was completed before the, or at the foundations of the world, since the foundations of the world, it's already been seen in Christ. So they did not believe because of the anguish of spirit and the cruelty of bondage. You know, this is the very thing that Christ came for. He said, I didn't come for the healthy, I came for the sick. I didn't, I didn't come through the righteous, I came for the unrighteous. These are the very people that God saves. He, Look amongst us, not many honorable, not many noble, not many kings and princes and multimillionaires amongst us. God's chosen the weak things, the foolish things of this world to confound the wise. And so, um, Jesus is this very much the savior of the downcast, the anguished of heart. They handed Jesus in the synagogue to honor him as a rabbi and they handed him the scroll and and the scripture of that day was in Isaiah 61. And Jesus read it in Luke 4, 18 to 19. It says, And the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And Jesus shuts the book and says, this is me. <laughs> this is talking about me and my ministry. And indeed it was, you look at that, the poor, the brokenhearted, who? The captives, the blind, the oppressed. And to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. That there is a salvation that's brought to them that can now save them out of all their bondages through the Messiah. It's interesting, it says there, they didn't believe because of the anguish of spirit and cruel bondage. 
Isn't that really true of the Jews to this day? I was just listening to a guy again, and, and he was contemplating Christianity, but he's just like the Holocaust. He was a Jew. No, no, I almost, you almost got me to believe, he was telling this guy. But then I remembered the Holocaust, and I realized, no, there can't be a God. If there was a God, then there would have been a no Holocaust. Well, the Jews had a lot of Holocaust. The Armenians had a Holocaust. Christians uh, under the Roman Empire had their Holocaust. Um, yeah, there's a real devil who hates the things God loves. And there is really a devil who's out to steal and kill and what? Destroy. He is, he's, he's a twisted, twisted dude. Well, moving on to verse 10 and 11 here tonight in Exodus 6. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, go in and tell Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, to let the children of Israel go out of his land. So Moses goes to the children of Israel, gives them the word of God, and they're like, we're more depressed than ever. This doesn't help us at all. I don't even know why you came. And God says, okay, now go tell Pharaoh. Okay, I'll go tell Pharaoh. It doesn't tell us here, but from what Moses says in verse 12, it appears that Pharaoh did not receive his word graciously either. Because very much Moses' response in verse 12 is, children of Israel didn't listen to me, and Pharaoh didn't listen to me. And he's going to talk about that. But here it's interesting how the Lord says, okay, you went to the children of Israel, they didn't believe Okay, now go to Pharaoh. <laughs> and off he's going to Pharaoh, saying the same thing to him. Let my people go out into worship. But in verse 12, an interesting verse. Moses spoke before the Lord, saying, The children of Israel have not heeded me. How then shall Pharaoh heed me? For am I, for I am of uncircumcised lips. Is he referring back to not talking so well? No. Uncircumcised means he's not consecrated to God. These lips know how to curse. <laughs> they know how to yell. They know how to be angry. But these lips are sinful lips. They don't have the ability to speak the word of God in the gracious way you're speaking it, in the power you're speaking it. God, your word is fabulous. But when I speak it, it is not fabulous. The problem here is me. Why are the children of Israel? Because I'm too big of a sinner. That's why they're not listening. When I go to Pharaoh, he's not going to listen. The children of Israel will listen. Why would Pharaoh listen? Of course he's not going to listen. And, and it's because of me. I, I told you right from the beginning, no, no, don't choose me. I told you I didn't talk so well. I, I do. We know from Acts uh, chapter 7 that he was a man mighty in word indeed. But yet he, he's now letting them know, going, I, I, I know God's holy and I'm not. And, and God's word is pure and true and I am not pure. And I am not this man of truth as God is. And the... Uh, it's never going to work as long as I'm in the picture. The only way this thing will ever succeed is if you get this evil, sinful, uncircumcised guy out of the way. 
and bring in Aaron, somebody holier than I. You know, it's, it's interesting. You say, well, that's, that's sort of unique. But look at how Paul saw it the same way over and over again. In 1 Corinthians 1.18, the message of the cross is foolishness. Notice how many times foolish shows up in this first chapter of 1 Corinthians. To those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. For since the wisdom of God, in 1 Corinthians 1.21, for since the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. In 1 Corinthians 1, 23 to 25, but we preach Christ crucified to the Jews, a stumbling block, and to the Greeks, foolishness. But to those who are being called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Then 1 Corinthians 2, look at how Paul felt about himself in these first five verses. And I, brethren, when I came to you, did not come with excellence of speech or of wisdom, declaring to you the testimony of God. I wasn't a very wise guy. I, I didn't have wisdom. I, I didn't have a way to explain it adequately. I did not adequately explain it, I, I, and I sounded foolish. But it was partly I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in the demonstration of the spirit and of the power that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. So in essence, Paul says, my experience was... <laughs> That just give the pure word of God. Now, it's interesting. If you look in Acts, he, right before he went to Corinth, in Acts 17, he was at this place in Greece, this Mars Hill. Thousands of people showed up, and, and he was there preaching, and, and he's quoting the Epicurean and the Stoic philosophers, and, and he's, you know, given this very excellent speech, <laughs> And it names the three people that believed. There was no church ever started there. The very next place he goes is Corinth. And he says, when I came to you guys, I, I didn't know what to say. I just, I gave it my best and nothing happened. It was a big dud. And I, I realized that it's got to be the power of God. It's got to be the spirit of God. And the message, it's, you know, God loves you. You're a sinner. He sent his son to die for you. Uh, you know, I love that in 1 Corinthians 15. Here is the gospel. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried. The next verse. And he rose again on the third day according to the scriptures. That's the gospel. <laughs> when I was in my Last year in high school, my brother had gotten right with the Lord and was on fire, and he was leading just dozens of people to Christ every day. And, and he's like, hey, let's go to the beach and witness. I'd never witnessed in my life. And I'm like, How, is this even possible? I mean, will people even let you talk to them? <laughs> and I remember we were out at Coronado, and he, we just walked up, and there was this group of guys, and, and, 
And my brother just did exactly that. Hey, guys, you know you're all sinners, but God loves you anyway. And he sent his son to die, and he was buried. He rose again the third day. And right now, if you give your lives to Jesus, you won't perish, but have everlasting life. And I'm listening going, is this where these guys are going to fall on the ground laughing their heads off? Because it just sounded like a little three-year-old kid mumbling some crazy stuff. And the Spirit of God fell on these guys, and they all, many of them with tears, gave their life to the Lord. He uh, gave them the address to Horizon at that time, and, and he told them where he'd be sitting at the church, and they all showed up and had a concert, and, and there was 50 other people he'd led to the Lord the days preceding, and I, I learned at that point going, it, it is, it is the power of God. It is true. And I understand that it's spiritual. The natural mind's never going to understand it. So if the Holy Spirit, who's convicting every man of sin and righteousness judgment, is speaking to their hearts and they can hear it, then they'll, it'll bear witness because the Holy Spirit's already been speaking to you about sin, about righteousness, and about judgment. So they, when they hear my words, it will, the puzzle pieces will fit. <laughs> Yes, I am convicted by my sin already. Well, why, why would you be? Because the Holy Spirit speaking to them. And Paul's got it right. I, I came this time and I, I didn't try to make Christianity sound worldly, intelligent, and fits in. When, when Paul was preaching, they, they actually gave their commentary in Acts. They said he, they were... He was doing really good, man. He, he was really captivating them until he mentioned the resurrection from the dead and they all laughed at him and, and cleared the place out. So yeah, I, I understand that Jesus being God who left heaven coming to human flesh, and, but it's the truth. But yet, to those who believe, it's the wisdom and the power of God. And so Paul said, I, I came like Elijah. I love, I love Elijah, how, how he, Elijah, how he didn't just call fire to heaven to consume the calf when he was in a, a debate with the, the bell worshipers or the bell priests. They couldn't get fire to come out of heaven. They were surprised. They really thought they could. It's interesting because in the book of Revelation, that is one of the things the devil can do. Matter of fact, that's how the Antichrist is going to deceive the world is by being able to call fire to heaven whenever he wants. So the miracle really isn't that Elijah called fire to heaven. The real miracle is that these bell worshippers weren't able to. They should have been able to. They were shocked that they couldn't. But God held Satan back from doing it. But I like it the fact that Elijah just dumped a bunch of water. He made a big trench and he dumped water. Because he, he didn't want some freak spark. <laughs> he didn't want somebody saying, well, that guy was smoking on the top of the hill. And I think he sort of got, you know. It was like, it's, it's going to be so overwhelmingly God or nothing. And it says God brought fire to heaven and licked all the water until the ground was dry. And it was just an amazing fire. So Paul is saying that, that, that I... When I preach the gospel now, yeah, I, I'm in fear and I'm in trembling and I am in weakness, but it's okay because 
it's God or nothing. <laughs> and, and God's spirit does save people in that. They know. They know they were touched by God's spirit. You know it was the power of God. I love Paul talking specifically about sharing the word of God in 2 Corinthians 2, verse 14 to 16. Now thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ. Through us diffuses the fragrance of his knowledge in every place, whether it's appreciated or not. <laughs> He's going to talk about that. For we are to God the fragrance of Christ. Isn't that amazing? When we share the Lord, we are actually the fragrance of Christ. And then he says to those who are saved and to those who are perishing. So saved people smell that receive the gospel. They smell and they receive that beautiful sense of Christ. People that don't believe also smell that fragrance of Christ. Now, to one, it's an aroma of death. I have not smelled a dead body. I know a lot of police officers, and that's one of the things they always talk about, just how unbelievably a dead body smells. And it's amazing that this beautiful, God loves you. He sent his son Jesus to die as a sacrifice for your sins. He can give you the free gift of eternal life, but it smells like a dead body. So you come walking into the club, oh, I smell the dead body again. It's a smell of death leading to more death. But to other, it's an aroma of life leading to more life. And then Paul ends up by saying, who's sufficient for these things? How, how, how can we ever be successful once leading somebody to Christ? How can we ever be a light or a salt of the earth even for one second ever? We can't. It's not us, is it? This is the point he's making. It's real. God is real. The spirit of God living in us is real. God's word is true. And this is the reality, bringing down all those false images and, and thoughts that exalt himself against the knowledge of God. I love 2 Corinthians 3, verse 4 through 6. We have such trust through Christ towards God. Not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think of what? Anything as being from ourselves. But our sufficiency is from God. In particular, the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. Who also made us sufficient as ministers. Not of the New Covenant. So not the New Testament. <laughs> Not of the letter, not of the Old Testament, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. So when the, the faith comes in the word of God and you believe it in your heart and you share it, it's not the word so much as the word of, of the Spirit of God moving you to move people now, Moses is feeling weak. We know that. He's feeling inadequate. We know that. But you wouldn't think Paul, at the end of over a decade of ministry, would be feeling that way still. But he did. Look at 2 Corinthians 12, verse 7 through 10. He said, And lest I should be exalted above measure beyond the abundance of the revelation, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I be exalted above measure 
Concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly will I rather boast in infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities and in reproaches and needs and persecutions and distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. So Moses, the answer is everybody feels like they have uncircumcised lips. Everybody feels sinful. Everybody is, is fighting this where it's like, am I, am I pure enough to speak for God? Am I holy enough to tell other people they're sinners? Am I good enough do I have enough knowledge? Do I have enough experience? Who am I? God uses only sinners. <laughs> I mean, I think he would love to have a second choice, but we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So there is no perfect vessel to give the perfect word. There is no amazing, righteous person that's telling everybody else they're unrighteous because he's so righteous. No, we're, we're constantly telling sinners, I'm one too. I'm not above you. I'm right with you. I'm a sinner. I need God's grace. That's our message. And so, of course, Moses, you're the perfect vessel. Because you're not going there, some self-righteous Pharisee pointing the finger, looking down. Thank you, God, I'm not like that tax collector. Thank you, God, that I'm so righteous and I'll never be that unrighteous ever, you know? Which one left justified in the eyes of God? <laughs> I tell you, it was the tax collector beating his chest saying, God, I'm a sinner, I'm a sinner. Moses, you're right where you need to be because it's the power of God, it's the truth of God that brings this all about. Well, in Exodus 6.13 now, all the way to the end of the chapter... Uh, interesting, but let me read verse 13 first. Then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them a command for the children of Israel and for Pharaoh, <laughs> and for Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt. So Moses is feeling all secure, insecure. He finally gets up the courage to share God, opens up his soul. I'm a man of uncircumcised lips. What do you say to this? God completely ignores it. He doesn't, he doesn't tell him, oh, that's okay, don't feel that way. It's just feelings. Feelings will pass. You know, it doesn't matter how you feel. You know, God ignores it and says, okay, yeah, you're right. Don't go tell them I want this. Go command the children of Israel and Pharaoh that they're all to go command them this time. Okay, they didn't listen to me when I asked them, but now they're going to listen to me when I command them. And God just ignores Moses and just says, go command Pharaoh this time, as well as the children of Israel. So now we take a little intermission in verses 14 to the end of the chapter. And it says here, let's, let's look at the genealogy. And it says, you guys remember the first son in, in verse 14 and is Reuben and his sons. And remember who the second son of Jacob was? 
Simeon. And, uh, you know, they had sons. Now, who is the third son? Well, that's Levi. Now, let's talk about Levi here a little bit. Now, does he go to the fourth son? He doesn't. Does he go to the fifth or sixth? No. All he's trying to get to is the third son because he wants you to make note of the genealogical reference of where the tribe of Levi come. Because Moses is the big figure and Aaron is the big figure from the tribe of Levi. What is the Bible doing here like it does in all genealogies? It's saying the Bible is a true historical record. And here are the documents to back it up. So this is not, Paul, you know, Moses is not like Zeus from this religion or, you know, some other fanciful fable, you know, with a moralistic teaching. No, these are real men. And I can prove it with documents all the way back to Abraham, all the way back to Adam, as you look at book of Genesis. So these two men come out of the tribe of Levi. Now, he first tells you of the first three sons of Levi in verse 16, Gershon, Kohath, and Merari. I love that name, Merari. I think I like it so much because it sounds like Ferrari. But either way, I think it's a pretty cool name. So you say, okay, do I need to memorize this? Actually, these three names you do because we're going to see them later. So in essence, this whole chapter is saying, take notes because you're going to need to know this stuff later. But I'm going to go ahead and give you the pieces of the puzzle now, but you won't be able to put it together until later. So we're going to discover when God makes the tribe of Levi priest that he actually breaks the priesthood into three segments. And the Kohathites is where Aaron comes from. That's the high priesthood or Kohathites. And then you have the other one and they, have, they all have different jobs to do. And so when he breaks it down, he's going to say the Gershonites all do this, the Kohathites do this, the tribe of Mer- or the Merariites do this. We're going to see that later. It's important. Now, he does want to mention in verse 18 here about one of their children, Koath. And the reason is he's going to mention him again in verse 24 because this guy's going to come up in, in number 16. It's really important that you know who this is. And then he also mentions verse 18, Amram. And why is that important? Because that is where Aaron and Moses come from. So verse 20 tells us that from the Kohathites, then he had a son named Amram. And Amram married his aunt, (laughs) Jochebed, and, and again, you say, married his aunt. Oh, don't forget, Abraham married his, his half-sister. It, it's, it's okay. It's, a, it's an Arab thing. Us Western culture people don't understand it. But either way, he marries his aunt, which she might have been 10 years younger than him. Don't, don't think that he's marrying this older woman necessarily. And, um, and then from Amram and Jochebed, those were the parents of Aaron and Moses. And Amram, like many of his 
guys of his time lived 137 years. That was pretty max. Now, they give the two sons, in verse 21 and 22, they give Ishar, Koah, the Korah, there it is again, Ishar, Korah, and Uziel. Those three are important for number 16 because these cousins or nephews, depending, I'm not sure, they, they have this rebellion against Aaron and, and Moses. They really hate him, even though they're relatives. So down in verse 23, it tells us now that Aaron got married to Elisheba, and Elisheba, they had four sons, Nadab, Abihu, Eleazar, and Ithamar. And those are going to be names that you're going to see again. But again, he mentions Korah once again and goes into his kids because they are going to be a significant when we get to the book of Numbers. And Eleazar, Aaron's son, he had a son in particular by the name of Phineas. So although Aaron had many grandkids, it is making a note of one grandchild, Phineas. And, um, and it says, these are all the heads of the fathers, houses of the Levites, according to their families. So take note. Now, he, he, he really is going to explain to you why in verse 26 and 27. And notice, these are the same. He says it redundantly, three times. In Exodus 6, verse 26, 27, these are the same. Aaron, Moses, to whom the Lord said, bring out the children of Israel from the land of Egypt according to their armies. These are the ones who spoke to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring out the children of Israel from Egypt. And there it is again. These are the same Moses and Aaron. It's making clear these are true, genuine people who lived in history. That's documented fact. There should be no debate. This is not some mythological a story like you have from the Greeks or, or whatever. This is a true factual thing. Now, verse 28 and 29. And it came to pass on the day that the Lord spoke to Moses in the land of Egypt, that the Lord spoke to Moses saying, I am the Lord, speak to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, all that I say to you. And Moses said before the Lord, behold, I am, un, I am of uncircumcised lips and now shall Pharaoh heed me. So now he says here, I'm repeating verse 12 and 13. So right before we took the intermission, in verse 13, I just repeated basically, verse 13, so now you're caught up, you know where we're at. But I just took a little intermission to give you this uh, genealogy and the historical record of who these guys are. So now he says, let's get back into the story. <laughs> and in verse chapter 7 now, verse 1 and 2, so the Lord said to Moses, see, I have made you as God to Pharaoh, and Aaron, your brother, shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and Aaron, your brother, shall tell Pharaoh to send the children of Israel out of the land. So he says it twice. Behold, I am uncircumcised lips, in verse 13, and again in verse 29. And God ignores it, and then he says, okay, let's do a little genealogy, and then he says, okay, I do need to clarify something. Moses, when you speak, it's going to be as if God were the one speaking. You're as if you are God. 
So it sort of changed. It was, you were the prophet and I was God, but then you wouldn't let me do it. So you made Aaron in there. So now Aaron sort of took your job. He's the prophet and you're in this, you're God. Okay, you ignored me about the uncircumcised lips thing. (laughs) You never told me anything, good or bad. And the next thing you tell me is just go back in there and talk to Pharaoh again. Tell him, command him this time. Okay, he does it. Same result. Uh, Let's talk about the uncircumcised lip thing. God says, oh yeah, before we go any further, Moses, you're now God. (laughs) So you're like God speaking to Aaron and Aaron's like the prophet. Isn't that amazing? The mind of God and how he's thinking. And and again, Moses is, is feeling so sinful. He's feeling so weak. He's feeling so inadequate. But yet the truth is, is without the Lord, everybody, it doesn't matter if you're the smartest guy on the planet, the richest guy on the planet, the most light person in the world, the most best speaker in the world, the most persuasive human being that's ever lived, your words cannot change the heart of anyone. You know, that's as pastors, when I train pastors, I say, look, you may move people in Sunday message and you may feel God's spirit, but if you move them, it'll last a day, maybe an hour. But if God does it, God's spirit moves, it will change their life. They'll never forget what God did on that Sunday or that Wednesday or whenever it is you spoke. Well, finishing up here, I want to go back to 2 Corinthians 3 where he says, clearly you are an epistle of Christ. Talking about the Corinthians. Ministered by us, written not with ink, but what? By the spirit of the living God. You're an epistle that the Holy Spirit is writing. Not on tablets of stone, but of tablets of flesh. That is of the heart. Once again, I read this earlier, but I want to read it again. In 2 Corinthians 3, verse 4 through 6, And we have such trust through Christ towards God, not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think of anything as being from ourselves, but our sufficiency, our adequacy, our ability to do what God says we are to do, it's from God, who has made us sufficient as ministers of the new covenant, not of the letter, but what? of the spirit for the letter kills but what the spirit gives life we were talking about this with our leadership meeting on monday night and just how we need the spirit of god i was listening to a number of testimonies of the hippies in the early days of calvary chapel and repeatedly separate things they said as soon as i walked onto the property my heart got weepy. <laughs> I didn't even know what this place was. I had no idea. Somebody said, go to Calvary Chapel. I'm like, I don't know. What's a Calvary Chapel? I don't know. What's over here? And they showed up. They didn't even understand. And then before the first song stroke, they were crying out to God. And, and Chuck, in one sermon, I remember him talking about how the, the place was full and the outside was full. And they were in the aisles. And, and Chuck just got up and said, there's some of you right now I know that you cannot 
wait till the end of the service to give your life to Christ. So they had emptied off the stage, which wasn't huge at the smaller auditorium. And about 400 people stood up and he says, come forward, let everybody come forward. And, and again, it was more people than they could get on the stage. He prayed a prayer. He goes, okay, now all you guys go outside. So many people from outside can come in now. And, and then he gave the sermon and he did it again. And that many people again received Christ. It was the spirit of God. It wasn't Chuck Smith. It wasn't Lonnie Frisbee. It, wasn't, it was the spirit of God. And, and I'll tell you what, I, I, I realized as I've been listening to the, the um, Jesus Revolution and, and, and just letting God stir my heart in these things um, with the Asbury revival and stuff, it, it is, Lord, forgive me for not living that life in the spirit being open to the Spirit, walking in the Spirit. Man, I can remember a season where God spoke to me all the time. Get up, Brian, and go over to this place and wait there. And this girl's going to come, and she has a child, and you need to pray for her child. And, and I'd be there, and lady would show up, and I'm like, hey, you know, yeah, I'm, I'm supposed to pray for your child. You know, my child's sick. I don't know. God told me to come here, and you were going to come. And I, I, those kind of things happen daily. Well, to end on this verse, First Peter 4, verse 10 through 11. As each one has received a gift, it's received a gift, salvation, but also the gifts of the Spirit, minister to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God or the many varieties, <laughs> the many variations in how God's Grace moves through the Spirit. If anyone speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God. If anyone ministers, let him do it as with the ability which God supplies. That is, in all things, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belong the glory and the dominion forever and ever. And all God's people said, Amen and Amen. Mm-hmm.